0: Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast.
1: We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to
0: intentionality,
1: diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy. My name is Kurt. um, And before service um, or as service was starting, we talked about how we are in a message series where we kind of looked at church and what we did every Sunday. Um, And you might be familiar with this rhythm we kind of sang a couple of songs, we did some announcements, and then someone talked about the Bible for 30 minutes, and we're like, we did it, we did church. Um, and we said, there's actually, we, there's no prescribed way we have to do this. That ultimately, the goal in gathering together on a Sunday morning is, how do we see ourselves? How do we become present in this space? And how do we see and experience God? And so ultimately, if that is what we're trying to do, There is no prescribed way that we can do that, should do that, that we need to constantly be moving and experimenting and looking at new ways and continuing to keep that as the focus. Is this helping us see and experience God? And so one of the things that we did is we kind of created a new flow, and we called it a liturgical flow, um, which kind of ties into the church and how it's functioned historically. But liturgical or liturgy simply means a work of the people. So how are we um, coming together as a congregation? How are we coming together as the group of people that are gathered here in this place to see ourselves uh, individually, communally, and how do we see God? So, uh, to that end, we created these different movements that can be a part of our services every week. And so, we're slowing down and we're really looking at them because the words in and of them themselves can be confusing. And people can walk in and assume, oh, that's what they're talking about because they're a church. And so the movement that we're looking at right now, and Coos and Lindsay helped us look at this last week, is the release of shame. And so to help us talk about uh, shame and how are we invited to release that, how are we called to see and experience our core identity through the eyes of God, we're going to look at a story in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to pull it up. We're going to be looking at Exodus 3. If you don't, no problem. Um, The words that we're going to be looking at this morning will be on the screen. But here's a little uh, backstory and context um, that hopefully will kind of get us set for there. Uh, So you're probably familiar with Adam and Eve. Like that's kind of the beginning of the story. Um, And ultimately, there's this calling of a man, Abraham, away from his family, away from what is known to start something new. And at God's invitation, God's saying, through you, the world is going to know who I am as God. You are going to be blessed to be a blessing to all the world. And uh, we might hear that and say, well, that's kind of interesting. But it was especially interesting in the culture and the world that this was created in. Because the primary understanding of God or the gods was they existed for their pleasure and for their benefit. And we were all kind of actors and players within that story. So a God that engaged with humanity and said, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the world was a transformational message that ultimately this God is not flippant or careless or selfish, but this God is intimately involved in the nature of our lives. So through Abraham, it starts this kind of movement of the Israelite people, first with his son Isaac, Isaac then has Jacob and Esau. And through Jacob, he has a lot of kids, a lot of sons. And these become the 12 nations of Israel. Um, more recent kind of tie-in to this, uh, any huge Donnie Osmond fans in the room? Uh, you got a little Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat. This is a, a key story that kind of links into that. And it, this is what's important, why we're getting to in Moses. This takes this family... And it puts them in Egypt. Uh, Joseph is sold off into slavery. He ends up working his way into being in charge of crops during a time of famine. His family has no food and they have to come to Egypt to get food. So this Israelite nation through these 12 brothers, these 12 families start to grow. And I'm going to say this as many times as possible because it's such a small line at the end of Genesis, but it's so important. Egypt and the Egyptians, who have all the power, the pharaoh looks at this Israelite people, which is just a nomadic tribe of people trying to survive, and sees that they are multiplying. And even though he has all the power, he becomes afraid. And what does power do when it becomes afraid? He enslaves them. The Israelite people are then enslaved. And this is where Moses comes into the story. Moses is born. Even the beginning of his story is, uh, at the time of his birth, is an Egyptian genocide of Jewish boys that he narrowly escapes. He's raised in Pharaoh's household um, through a cool kind of river story, his mother saving his life. So again, you have this enslaved people, that are being attacked and violated on a daily basis, and here one of their children is growing up in the center of power. He's raised in this family, he has access to this, but he has this conflicted relationship with where he lives now and where he grew up. And one day he sees another Egyptian who is striking and beating up a Hebrew, one of his people, and he becomes enraged and kills the Egyptian man. This ultimately becomes found out, and he has to leave uh, where he is. He has to leave Egypt, and he is in exile for a long time. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today in Exodus 3. Exodus 3, verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. Um, Sometimes I enjoy the little, uh, the language of the Bible. Because this is Moses' thoughts. He's alone. There's no one to say this to. And that's a really long way of saying, huh. Moses is walking around, he's like, huh, should probably go check that thing out. He goes and sees this bush that is burning, but is not being burnt up. And God speaks to him through that. Jumping down in uh, Exodus 3, verse 9, it says, this is God speaking to Moses through the bush. Now, the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Continuing in verse 13, God says, I will be with you. This will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So this is actually the first of a total of five statements that Moses makes in this interaction with God of saying, no, I really don't want to do this. Five different ways that Moses is getting at, not me. And what I love is it starts with, who am I? What is my identity? Why me? And I love that God doesn't say, This is who you are. This is why. Suck it up, buttercup. It's time to go. The first thing that God says is, I will be with you. That the God of the universe is pledging partnership in this journey. That you don't have to go this alone. Now, I've heard this kind of story taught a number of times about Moses and the burning bush. And the five different ways that Moses says, please no, not me. Um, Who will I say sent me? What if they don't believe me? I don't talk good. (laughs) And it's actually, I can never pass up the opportunity to say this. If you go and read, and I encourage you to, in Exodus 4, when Moses says, I don't speak well, it is hilarious. Because Moses says, pardon your servant, Lord, but I've never been eloquent of speech, neither in the past nor to this very day. Which is a rotten way of getting at, I'm not good at communication. (laughs) Um, And at the end of all of that, he's like, fine, you don't have to go alone. We'll send your brother Aaron. We all know he talks a lot. And then Moses just says, not me. Please just let someone else go. Now, I've heard this story taught as an extreme lack of faith. Basically, the God of the universe has shown up to you, Moses, and has called you, invited you to go. Who are you to say no? Are you accusing God of making a mistake? And then the message is put onto you. What kind of faith do you have? Would you do that kind of same thing? Shouldn't you just trust and believe in God? But I actually think what Moses is doing is profoundly healthy and beautiful that Moses doesn't suck it up, that Moses doesn't ignore the swirling of feelings and emotions that is within him. He actually has the presence of mind and the presence of God to say, here's all the baggage and stuff I have that makes me think I can't do this. Here's all the reasons why I don't want it to be me. And ultimately, I think he is addressing his shame. Now, Coos and Lindsay talked about this Last week. Sometimes it can be confusing to parse the difference between shame and guilt. And so when we talk about shame, what we mean is the internal voice within us that says, I'm not enough. The core of my very person, there's something wrong with me. Guilt on the other side is I, who am not an intrinsically bad person, made a mistake. Guilt says, I screwed up, and now I want to work to make amends. I want to work to reconcile. I want to work to overcome this mistake that I made, where shame says, this mistake you made proves your identity. This proves who you are. And this becomes, if you track the story of Moses, this beginning step of Moses getting out all of the different messages that he has internally about his very nature and who he is and why he can't do it, why he's not enough, are vital. Because later in the wilderness, the group of people that are following him, they turn on him and say, we don't think you should be a leader. And I think if Moses had not faced them at the beginning of the journey, if it was me, I would have been like leading people and leading, and then the moment people are like, we don't think you should be a leader. I'm like, yeah, me either. (laughs) Literally any of you, by all means, go for it. But Moses at that point has sat with it enough and has this understanding of who he is, not as someone better than the rest of them, but an identity and calling of God that this is my role in this time. And so one of the things I think is most beautiful about that is shame is an internal message. Shame starts internally. These messages we tell ourselves about who we are and what we are capable of and what we can do and largely what we can't do. And usually shame is pressing on the same button over and over again, and it's the enough button. You're just not good enough you're just not strong enough. You don't have enough patience. You don't have enough technical skill. You don't have enough education. And it's continuing to speak this message within us that we are not enough. And one of the first and most powerful steps that Moses models for us here is making that internal voice external. To voice it, to watch the words come out of our mouths, Usually, this will be a very surprising moment where we will have not fully known, while we have very deeply felt, the experience of these shame messages that have been looping and looping and looping and looping. And usually at a time when we're exhausted and we're tired and we're with a close and trusted friend and we just blurt it out, well, it's because I'm garbage. And we go, oh, whoa. That was in there. And so this morning, hopefully you got three pieces of paper when you came in. We want to start our service by taking one of those pieces of paper and answering this question. Where do I experience shame? You don't have to sign and date it. Um, You don't have to connect yourself to it in any way. But what we're going to do as part of our worship service is we're going to give some time for you to write down where do you experience shame. We're going to have you fold it, and in a bit, we're going to pass them to the middle and collect them. And then we're going to have um, someone come up later in our service and read them. The goal and reason uh, that we want to read them is another way that shame operates in our lives is not only is it speaking this message of not enough, but it's saying, and you're alone in this. And you're the only one that feels this way. You're the only one that is this way. And I want you to see and for us to hear, what is the messages of shame so we know, oh, I'm not alone. That there's actually a lot of us that are battling these same demons. And when we can get it out into the open, Now we can let other voices respond. Now we can let other messages and other things invade the space that we have now vacated with our truth-telling about these messages of shame. So I'm going to give you a couple of minutes now to stop, to breathe, and to write down, where do I experience shame? Hopefully you have pencils in front of you. So... Uh, It was sometime in the past two or three weeks I saw a news story that I thought was one of my favorite stories I've seen in a very long time. It was actually a picture of this bird right here. That they had found this bird and they were thinking this is a rare and unique bird. They had never discovered another bird like this with this orange coloring in the region. And they brought it back um, to a veterinary clinic where they inspected the bird. And one of the things they did was they washed the bird (laughs) and discovered that this one-of-a-kind, amazing new discovery in the avian world was, in fact, a regular old seagull who had gotten into some curry and (laughs) dyed its feathers orange. (laughs) And when I saw that story, I loved it so much. Not because I had it out for seagulls, and I'm like, yeah, put that seagull back in its place. But rather, I think it's a great metaphor for some of our greatest fear. I think one of the fears that Moses is addressing by saying, these are the areas where I don't think I'm enough. And if you get to just the first three words Of Moses' question back to God after God says, I'm sending you is who am I? Who am I? If you're familiar with this term, uh, imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome is something that has been studied and researched, and they've seen more and more that is infected, uh, not infected, but it has affected greater and greater numbers of people. Imposter syndrome is basically whatever role that you play in this world, your core belief is you are not qualified or capable of being there. And at some point, you will be exposed as an imposter. And what's really problematic and troubling about imposter syndrome is it has a compounding effect. So that voice within you that says you will be exposed as an imposter doesn't go away as you have greater and greater levels of achievement and success, but rather it gets louder and worse and worse. So what I love, probably not the right word, is that it impacts almost everyone on a, on a deep and profound level, and people that we would compare ourselves to and to say, well, I'm not like them, especially people that have achieved greater and greater levels of success, they're actually experiencing it on an even deeper and more profound level. This threat and fear that I'm going to be exposed as a fraud one day someone's going to come across and say, oh, you're not a special and unique bird. You're just a seagull covered in curry. And that it's going to get washed away and you're going to be exposed for who you are. The truth that I think God is speaking in and through this is weave become this kind of creature where we have taken on, like a hermit crab, these shells and these identifiers and these parts of our being to try and bolster and protect ourselves and say, this is who I am and this is what I'd like to project. But when it's actually taken away, when the curry is washed off, we don't find something that is worthy of being detested. We find something worthy of love. We find something beautiful and in many ways more beautiful. You find people that don't have a fear of being exposed because they know that the only thing that would be exposed is something worthy of being loved. And so this might easily be the strangest thing we've done in church. But something within me gets really excited about something that would elicit a one or a five Amazon review. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not looking for two threes and fours here. I want ones and fives. All right. We're and also I love this. The image that we had created in going through this, that Scott created, is this image. Um, is that a goose or a duck, Scott? It's a goose, but it's it's bird related, right? So I love that we have the kind of bird-related. Here's what I want to do, the ones and fives exercise, with your second piece of paper. We're going to put up the beauty of the bird, and you're going to look at the picture of the washed seagull. See, the lie in the narrative that we told ourselves is that seagull is ugly and common and not worth anything. The only reason it was special and worthy of attention is when it was covered in curry. It was when it was orange, and we thought it was the only one. We had discovered something new. But that's just a narrative that we've told ourselves. There's something deeply beautiful about this bird. So can we look past the curry and the lie, and can we write down what is beautiful, literally, this seagull? So I want to give you a couple minutes as you look and reflect I want you to look and reflect on what are the narratives I believe, what's the lie that I feel like I have to maintain, and what's the beauty that could be revealed behind it all. If some of you would be willing to say out yours, what did some of you write? What is beautiful about this bird? Loves curry. <laughs> it's a bird with good taste, it's good. What else did you write down? Beautiful eyes. Yeah. Strength, the contrast of its colors. Yeah. World traveler. Yeah. The ability to fly. Yeah. Near a beach. Yeah. They're not called Kansas gulls, are they? Yeah. Beautiful. Anyone else? It does look like he has a little smirk. He's a goal that knows some stuff. I love it. A noble look. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Those eyes can tell some stories, huh? So, uh, what'd you guys do at church today? Well, <laughs> I'm going to invite up JR. Is JR in here? Oh, he's out there. JR is going to come in, and he has collected and he's kind of looking through. He's going to read our experiences on the places that we're experiencing shame. And so as Jr. is kind of ready and going in here, here's the thing that I'd like to invite you to do. The goal of this and the way that I would hope that we can receive it is that we are speaking the lies out loud as a way of turning on the lights in the dark, that this would not be a way of compounding our shame, but that this would be a place of lifting off the covers of our shame. So I want you to be able to deep, uh, breathe deep, exhale deeply, and to be able to hear as we share.
0: Kurt, I don't know if you shared this, but uh, I'm kind of overwhelmed. People spend years in therapy and can't do this. I want to just acknowledge your courage and uh, your openness in putting this actually out on paper. It's... uh, what a step toward freedom. So I'm gonna read these and you're gonna you're gonna hear a lot of repeats. They kind of end up grouping together, and I think you'll hear that. Where do I experience shame? In dating, messing up or not being a good enough friend. In relationships. I believe that people only tolerate me I'm not smart enough I feel shame in front of an audience not being experienced enough to be leading supervising or making decisions in my work divorce loneliness Needing love, companionship, and family. I haven't made it far enough in my career, and I won't be able to catch up. Not doing enough in my career. I'm too fat, body image. I feel shame in not being good enough. I experience shame when I'm in a small group of outgoing, smart people, and they ask me a question. I don't have enough passion and sympathy. I experience shame in the ease with which I see women as objects for pleasure. I'm not pretty or athletic enough. Divorce, parenting mistakes, being less than regular at church attendance. I feel like I am letting the people I love and care about down. Rules and compliance, parenting. When I make mistakes, that means I'm a fraud and it's Only a matter of time before everyone knows. I don't deserve my husband. I'm not good enough for him. Not being a mom. People don't really like me. I feel shame in the way I react to street people. In finances, my short temper and anger, money, in being enough. I experience shame when I look in the mirror, when I walk by other women who are skinny, during worship time at church when I compare myself to people who are more expressive than me. The way my mother sees me. My income. Parenting. I'm not worthy of taking up space in my life. I'm waiting for my boyfriend to find a better partner. I think my child has been cursed with me as a mother. I try my best to seem capable and intelligent, but my true self just isn't. I experience shame when I think or read about my innate personality. Where do I not? I experience shame in how I look. In my successfulness or lack of it. I experience shame in my lack of intelligence. So I feel stuck in the trades. I bring hurt and pain to others when I show my true self. I feel shame when I notice my emotions and own my experience. I will never be a good person. I will corrupt everything I touch. Am I a bad parent? For mistakes I have made that injured emotionally my own family. I experience shame in the family I came from not earning enough money. Where do I experience shame? When I think about my finances and personal debt. When I'm in a small group or class and I'm afraid to speak up. I experience shame in my sexual identity and my leadership. In my family, when I've missed something important to someone or I'm late to something important, I can't seem to beat this never-ending dad tummy, body shame. I don't know if I have the interest or capability to parent well not feeling smart enough. I feel like I'm not a good enough husband and father when I'm too tired or busy or distracted to be fully present with my wife and kids. My mental health, parenting, not being able to reach out to all the people in my life on a regular basis. I feel like a flake, I experience shame in relationships, I feel like an inadequate father, I don't feel enough, not enough as a mother. My family I grew up with never did or does have any interest in me. In my physical body, I feel shame in some of the things I've done in my life. I feel shame at the doctor. not able to perform tasks adequately as well as I intend. No matter how hard I work to provide for my family, I don't believe that it's ever enough. I feel selfish taking time to care for myself. I feel like my wife deserves better than me. Expressing feelings. Body image, motherhood, motherhood, I'm not worthy of love, raising children, I experience shame when I'm not smart enough. I experience shame as a working mother. I feel like I am not giving my best at work or at home. I experience shame in my body. I take up too much space. I'm not healthy enough. In my body, in my mind, I'm not enough in my service or profession. A lack of boldness, confidence, assertiveness, a lack of understanding of a few life things like budgeting, taxes, insurance, fatherhood, past decisions that didn't work out, and future ones ahead. I feel shame in conversations with my mother. I feel shame when I feel past circumstances have an effect. On my public reputation I feel judged by past mistakes I experience shame with my mom parenting career sexuality someone I perceive as having more power puts me in my place tells me I have no power or right to say or do what I do I experience shame in my laziness experience shame in not being educated or articulate, fast thinking or disciplined. I feel shame when I see homeless people. Shame that I'm not doing enough.
1: What was that like for you to hear that? I'm interested in some of your responses. What was it like to hear those things read in church? Heartbreaking. Heavy. Vulnerable. Not alone. Sacred. Something we all have in common. Did any of you just want it to stop after a while? Like, okay, we get it. (laughs) These moments are really uncomfortable, aren't they? Because this isn't how we talk. I think one of the reasons why it feels so vulnerable is because we say, well, that's for behind closed doors. That's how I talk to myself. But we don't put that out there publicly. I mean, we don't just hear those messages over and over again. That's a private conversation for me and myself. And yet, in reading those and exposing those and voicing those, the hope is that like Moses at the burning bush, we say, oh, this is a moment in a space that is sacred that requires us to stop and to see I'm not alone. I'm not alone that these voices that have plagued me have not just plagued me alone. And so if these are the voices that we have internally, and these are the voices that are operating within us, one of the things that's important to look at is how does God view us? How does God hear and respond? Again, going back to the story, one of the first things that God says when Moses says, who am I, isn't enough Just go, I'm with you. The Moses and the burning bush story actually reminded me a lot of Moana. Anyone seen Moana? You remember when the heart of Te comes to her as a child? And it becomes such a core part of the movie. And if you're like, hey, spoilers. I'm sorry, I'll ask for forgiveness later, okay? This is important. When the heart of Te comes to Moana, you know that it didn't choose her for no reason. That even when things get awful, that even when things get hard, even when it appears the heart of Teviti just picked the wrong person, you know that it didn't. Because the choice of Moana was the right choice. And at the burning bush, there can be this moment that says, there's no time for excuses. There's no time for this. And yet, one of the aspects of God that goes under notice in the story is the patience of God. The all-knowing, all-powerful God sits with Moses and has a conversation. Doesn't jump in and say, I actually know all your thoughts. Can we just fast-forward this process? Here, you're going to ask these questions. Let me just address all those right away. That God, the first thing that God says is so important, I will be with you. And so when these voices rise, God is with us in the midst of it. So what is this God saying? One of the ways that we experience and know God is through the person of Jesus. And to look again and again at the story of Jesus is how does Jesus deal with with these voices within us. Some key stories that kind of jump to mind that you might be familiar with. There's a woman who is caught in adultery. She's brought into the public square to be stoned. And if you think about that kind of a system, that someone who has made a mistake, that the penalty for that mistake is death, this is the product, the symptom of a shame system. Your mistake has exposed who you are to everyone. There is no place for redemption. Your penalty is death because you've been exposed as a threat to our system and our society. You should die. And what does Jesus say to that shame system that says you are wrong at the core of your being? Jesus is like, let the person without sin. Let the person who hasn't made another mistake be the first one to throw off the stone. When Jesus meets a woman at the well, a woman who is only at the well in the middle of the day because she can't go in community with the rest of the women for fear of judgment or exclusion, what does Jesus say to her? No, 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 I'm meeting you here. Let's have water together. That Jesus is constantly saying, I see who you are And this system that is turned into a system of shame is not the system that you are under any longer. If you're unfamiliar, there is a sacrificial system that is operating within the Jewish people. What it means, and it would have been a revolutionary thought when this starts in the time of Moses, that ultimately if you have something that you have done that has broken community with the people around you and the God who has oriented your community, there were clear and obvious next steps to resolve this chasm, this this thing that has happened, this thing that severed relationships. And by offering sacrifice, no longer do you have to wonder, who am I and what does God think of me? I know I'm back in relationship, I'm back in community. While it could sound barbaric to us today. What is more barbaric is to live within a religious system that says, you never know what God thinks of you, probably mad at you. But what happens with this system is what happens to so many systems in our world where it becomes used as a power, And this power is used to say your core identity is something to be ashamed of. Who you are at the core is someone who's going to screw up over and over and over again. So we are going to be the guardians of this system, and we are going to exclude many of you because you don't deserve to be here. In Matthew 9, there's a brilliant little story that I want to sit with for a second. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came into his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man laying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And then the man got up and went home. What is revolutionary about this story is that Jesus say your sins are forgiven. Jesus isn't saying, hey, you're a pretty all right guy. I don't know if you've gotten a bad rap, but don't worry about it. What Jesus is saying when your sins are forgiven is you don't have to go through that shame system any longer. That your core identity is someone who is made in the image of God and you belong, not through your action and activity, but as a core identity as to who you are. That Jesus was interested in striking down systems that heaped shame upon his people. And a lot of times when it comes to the cross and when we sing these worship songs and we think of Jesus and we talk about Jesus forgiving our sin and the blot of our sin, the message is you suck, you suck, you suck. But don't worry. The God of the universe took care of all of it for you. For I think that what Jesus is coming to do and what the sin of us that Jesus is coming to address are these messages of shame about our core identity of belonging and being. That Jesus let the shame system take him, which had nothing to be ashamed of. The core story of Jesus is that Jesus was sinless. He didn't even have anything to be guilty of. And yet the shame system demanded blood. The shame system demanded sacrifice, and Jesus said, so that you will know that you do not exist in a shame system, but that your sins are forgiven, that your core identity is good and beautiful, that this is the foundation, the platform for us to address the ways that, yes, our actions do break relationship with ourselves and others. Yes, there are consequences that we don't say, hey, your truth is your truth, do whatever you want. That some of us have to deeply repent for our actions, but the reason why we're repenting for those actions is because our core identity is beloved. Our core identity is good. Jesus' action on the cross wasn't just for the mistakes. It was to call and redeem our core identity as good and beloved. And how the Christian story perverted and took that to a different place is because we just love that shame system so much. And so I'm going to invite up the band because one of the ways that we want to close is I think there's something really powerful about coming back to these messages and stories that we heard as a kid or maybe we grew up culturally if we didn't grow up in the church or maybe we don't know it all. But to say that the theology and the words of these songs are not wrong and corrupt at their core, but rather the lens that we use to view these words have become so twisted and put off that it reinstates the shame system. So we're going to sing a song that you might be familiar with called Jesus Paid It All. All to him I owe. My sin had blotted me, but Jesus made me white as snow. That as you sing these songs, the lens I want you to sing and view this through is that Jesus' forgiveness and Jesus' work in us was to address our places of shame and to speak truth in the places where we have allowed lies to roam. Hear this with love and acceptance. These are lies. They're not true. As a parent, you probably have failed. As an employee, you probably have failed. As a person, relationally, you've probably made mistakes. But the lie of these papers is that that is your core identity, is that is who you are. And if you spend enough time in the presence of a God feeling bad about them, then you'll be healed. And that is a lie. We have already been set free to see ourselves within the image of God.